it's time for us, we now have this opportunity to pray, to go before the Lord in prayer. And prayer is such a powerful tool that we have in our toolbox, such a, a powerful reality when you think of it. These are things, of course, I've said before, but they bear repeating that the creator and sustainer of the universe has given us an audience with him. And so the question we must ask ourselves is why wouldn't we want to be a praying people? When the Bible talks about prayer so often, uh, there are several or a few places where it's instructive. Of course, Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray and then Jesus praying to his father in John 17. What a beautiful prayer. But the Bible is also filled with examples of when did Jesus pray when he needed to be strengthened. Jesus instructed his disciples that some demons don't come out without much prayer. In other words, that when we are combating the forces of evil, yes, we can debate in the public square, and we should when it's appropriate. But it should begin with prayer, praying for lost souls, praying for God's word to shine through us. This morning, I have no idea what burdens each one of you have brought into this room. I couldn't know. But God knows. And I want you to be encouraged that when we go before the Lord in prayer and we lift up and make our requests, we verbalize our requests to him. This is not just a nice thing we do in the service. We genuinely believe that God hears and answers according to his will. So would you, by faith with me now, bow your head and pray that the maker of heaven and earth would receive our prayer and answer according to his will? Please pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning, we've just sang of your faithfulness, we've recognized that we do have a blessed assurance in Christ, we've began this service after the call by your word to announce that we are praising you. God, these are not just nice things, nice ideas, these are done because we really believe that you are all the things the Bible says that you are, that you are the Holy Father, that you sent the Holy Son and that you lead and guide us now by the Holy Spirit, that we might live with, in, and for you. And God, that we might do so boldly as a reflection, as the imitation of your own bold love for us. Oh, Father, if we were left to ourselves, which one of us in this room could stand? Let no man or woman ever think they have anything if it's not with, in, and for you. And God, may we be disabused of any notion that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or that we stand mighty because we are so intellectual or we are so strong or we are so gifted. No, may all these things perish and may we know only Christ and Him crucified that, that by that means, by that power we live, by that power we stand, by that power we speak, and by that power we walk. And Father, may we be ever strong and bold for you. Father, this morning I think about our brothers and sisters around the world who perish, who are persecuted, who are constantly under threat because of their faith in you. Strengthen the persecuted church. I think of our brothers and sisters in China, the early reign church. Oh God, continue to daily give them grace daily mercy for them as they make their stand for you and do not back down. I pray for their pastors. I pray for their elders. I pray for the church members who have decided to follow you against all odds and against all obstacles and to make their stand. Oh God, embolden them. Give them your grace. May they know your spirit daily. Well, Father, I think about our own country. I look at what's happening to us morally, ethically, as a culture. We are descending down, and yet the church, your church, your people, your bride has this opportunity 
to shine brightly in a dark world. Oh, Father, give us the boldness to do it, to confront lies, to confront injustice, places where things are not right, to stand for what is true, even if it costs us everything. Lord, give us grace to do it. I pray for our elected officials that they would have the wisdom to listen to good counsel, that they would not continue on in cultures of death. I pray that Planned Parenthood and all who are like it will be shut down forever and that life would win because, oh, Father, you are life and may we be a reflection of you. I pray in our country that we would see revival like never before where Christians set on fire by the word of God seek to set the world on fire with the gospel. Father, may it be so, we pray. Thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for this time to worship. God, continue to be with us, I pray through Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together again. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Bear patiently. Be still, my soul, when change. 
If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, where we will finish that chapter this morning. We know we've been making our way through Daniel, and we are now at the very last paragraph of what is, um, I would imagine, a very familiar story to most anybody who's read the Bible or been in Sunday school class at any point in their lives with the fiery furnace. You know, we've been looking at Daniel, kind of laying the groundwork and seeing themes that are repeated throughout this book. You know, Daniel chapter 3 is not too different than Daniel chapter 6 or Daniel chapter 5 even in the sense that there is this constant call to faithfulness. What will you do in these kind of moments where you have an opportunity to perhaps shy away or, or stand down or, or not stick out? Will you be faithful in those moments or will you choose an easier path or at least easier for a moment because it doesn't invite any sense of persecution or, in Daniel's case, or, or uh, the three Judean men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the threat of death. And so when we read these stories, it's always easy for us to disconnect the story from reality because the story is printed words on a page. And so when we think about the printed word on the page, I want us to understand that this involves a real-life situation. This happened to young men. This happened to people who really had to deal with the threat of, I'm about to die for what I believe. And so when I think about that, I, I, want, us to not, I want us to be sobered, that we're not just reading a story. This is not a Marvel comic book story. This is real. These are real men who really lived, who really had to decide in a moment, will I give my life for this? And the whole of Daniel really is about that. Of course, when we get to the prophetic side, there, we get a little bit of change of gears. But uh, these narratives are meant to show us, A, for all through human history, human beings have had to live in caustic, hostile cultures. All through human history. And all through human history, Christians have had to decide, the people of God have had to decide, when my time comes, what will I do? How will I stand? Will I make my stand? Or will I capitulate? And so, beloved, you live in 2021 where the same questions swirl around in your mind. Will, what will you do? Will you stand? Will you be bold? Or will you capitulate? Without further delay, let's turn our attention to the text this morning. We're looking at Daniel chapter 3, picking up in verse 19 and going to the end of the chapter. So Daniel chapter 3, verses 19 to 30. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace." Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. 
He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Please now pray with me. Father, thank you for this word, its power. Thank you for the beauty of it, the truth of it. Thank you for the precision of it, that it gets right to the heart of truth and what is good and right and beautiful. May we be inspired by it, God. May we be transformed by it. May we be renewed by it, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of my heroes in the list of heroes, I have several, but one of my heroes comes from World War II, and his name was Dick Winters. He served in the Airborne and Stephen Ambrose's book, Band of Brothers, which they made a TV series about him. It features him. But he is one of my all-time favorite war heroes because he was a man who served with distinction and honor as a paratrooper. And when you read his story and you read about him in battle, he is repeatedly... He, through battle and tough decisions, he proved his ability to lead well. On D-Day, when they stormed, or when the paratroopers were let down on D-Day, he and his men, a small contingent of men, took a German uh, artillery mount. And they took it so decisively, so beautifully, so textbook, we could say, that West Point thought it was so good that they used that as the textbook case of how you take an enemy mount. And he, was, he had the capacity to think quickly, to think boldly, to lead boldly. And one of the things that you read or hear about the testimony from his men is he never thought about being last. When he was in command, he led his men. He didn't stand behind them telling them where to go. He was out front constantly putting him, himself in harm's way. He was bold. <laughs> he was bold, but he was able. He wasn't just bold and reckless. He was bold and able. And he wasn't able but fearful. No, no, no. He was able and bold. When we think about these two words, bold and able, as much as I love Dick Winters and as much as he is a hero of mine, no one, no living being alive embodies those two words like Yahweh does, like our God in heaven, who is bold in his love, who is able. He's not only able and he's not just bold, He is boldly able to do all that we ask or think. He's exceptionally better than Dick Winters at all these things. When we look at Daniel 3, we've now read the entire chapter, gone through it, and finished out the final paragraph. We see how, as I said a moment ago, it's very similar to Daniel 6, because we're looking at a bold deliverance on God's part. 
God sees his people in a particular situation, and he chooses to act, and not just act, but act boldly, to do something that there is no question that, that God did this. And I love that he does it this way, because sometimes the miracles of God are subtle. I don't mean to make less of them, I just mean that they can appear to be subtle. These are not subtle miracles. This is not a subtle deliverance. This is very much in our face. It's also similar to chapter 6, what we see in chapter 3, is that the obedience offered to God was not contingent on deliverance. I'll obey insofar as you deliver me. It was I'll obey if it costs me everything. You see, these men know what it means to be in a committed relationship, and they take their commitment so seriously, they say, I will die for it. Beloved of God, you can't ask for a better example of that. If we want to look at, we want to emulate people, not Hollywood. This, these are the people we should be looking up to in Scripture. These men who say, I will die for my commitment. These men offered obedience, as does Daniel in other spots, with a pure heart, from a pure heart of worship and service regardless of the outcome. Remember? Remember how they answered him previously? They said in, in chapter 18, or back up a little bit, 17, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, chapter 18. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Well, we learn what compelled them in that decision was their own worship of Yahweh. We worship the true God. We're not going to worship your gods. And so for their worship, their, their, their service was offered from a heart of worship regardless of what happens. We may burn to death, but we're not going to worship your gods because our, God, our heart, rather, is given to Yahweh, and it's His alone. Our hearts are His. You see, trials don't demean. When we go through trials, and you do go through them, we all do, trials don't demean the ability or bold love of God. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that trials are evidence that God doesn't love you or can't act. Nowhere. The trials that come, the hardships that we face, God uses those to show that when we are at our worst, we're not forsaken. And there are times when you are at your worst. There are times when Brad is at his worst. And we, we walk through this with the grace and, and, and mercy of God so that we remember when I am at my worst, I am not forsaken. There were times when David was at his worst and he wasn't forsaken. There are times where other characters in the Bible have been at their worst. I mean, Paul, for crying out loud, says, God, take this from me. This messenger of Satan is tormenting me, please. I mean, when we read Paul that, you need to think, see the urgency in Paul. He's pleading. He wants God to take it away. What does God say? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. What does that tell us? Yeah, when we are at our worst and we're down in the doldrums, we're not forsaken. There's no better message than that. Yeah, do you want to be relieved of pain and trial and hardship? Sure, I do. But there's no better message that says we're never alone. God delights to show his preserving power to us, so, so often he leads us through that valley of shadow. In the valley of shadow, we have hope and confidence because he is with us. I love that beautiful psalm 
the Spirit inspired David to pen. How comforting it is to know that the man after God's own heart went through the valley of shadow. How much more comforting it is to know that in that valley he made a confession that we're not alone there. The theme of this chapter is the goodness of God despite circumstances we face. I mean, so in other words, we're looking at tough circumstances that has nothing to do with God's goodness. So we, don't, we, we need to kind of keep those categories separate. God is good and circumstances are hard. That's just true. God's goodness is never questioned. What I love here is, and Daniel is the same way in his trials, they never question if God is good at all. They don't question if God is able. They just confess we don't know the will of the Lord in this particular moment. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they never balked at the idea that God might not keep them from the plane, or from the flames, rather. They said, we, he's able to, to deliver us. He will deliver us one way or another, but if he doesn't deliver us from the fire, we're not going to worship. There was no second guessing there, at least none written. And so when we, when we think about that, beloved, I want you to let that sink in. They are staring at a furnace thinking, God might not save us from this. It, it begs a question from you and me. What is the challenge? That if God asks you or me or us to step into the flames, will we go knowing we're loved? Will we go knowing that we're loved and that God is able to do more than all we ask or think? When God is asking us to step up to the flames, whatever they may be, whatever trial it is, will we walk in knowing that we are loved infinitely, even in the pain? With those thoughts in mind, there's a central point I want for us to see, and it's this, that God is bold in the deliverance of his people that God is bold in the deliverance of his people. How bold is God? Well, let's think of another biblical story. Perhaps you're familiar with Hosea and Gomer. What if God tells Hosea, the man of God, to go and marry this woman who was a, a prostitute? It was anathema in that culture. She was a loose woman. She was tainted. She was all the things that you wouldn't want to be your wife or the mother of your children, and yet God tells Hosea to go and marry her and have children with her and build a life with her. And then when she strays and goes back to her trade, God says, now go back and buy her back. Why? What is the point of Hosea? God was giving Hosea and the nation of Israel a picture of his love for a straying and errant wife in Israel. He says, I love you this much that I'm willing to find you in your adultery and sin and buy you back. Beloved, that's the God we serve. That's the God who was present in Daniel. That's the God who was present in the incarnation in Jesus Christ. That is the God who is present with us today. That God that says, I will love you boldly. What is the boldest display of God's love? Nothing more bold than the cross of Christ, that God sent his son into the world to become a sin offering for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What a bold love that is. Uh, so when we're looking at this, we need to say, even though it does love, the word love is not mentioned in this paragraph, we need to understand that the overarching theme is love. God loves his people. There is a bold love here. We have seen bold trust, bold trust by these three Judean men. So how does God respond to bold trust with bold love? Here, and this is not the only place we see this. Think of Moses. 
Moses boldly trusted in Yahweh, and God used Moses to deliver Israel. Think of Joseph. Joseph boldly trusted in Yahweh, and Yahweh used Joseph to deliver Egypt, and so forth and so on. When we think of, of God's response to bold trust, it is bold love. God boldly loves us even when we don't boldly trust. So even when we're at our worst, we are still confronted with a bold love through Jesus Christ that will not let us go even in the flames. When you look at this paragraph, it really breaks down in two neat, easy sections. Verses 19 to 23 is the crisis. It's, I'm just using literary terminology here. It's the crisis. It's, we're getting a glimpse of what is the crisis presently. So in 19 through 23, we're looking at this. We understand that Nebuchadnezzar, or rather Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have just said that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so 19 follows. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. So Nebuchadnezzar's anger is swift. He's moving to condemnation now. They have injured his pride. They have made him mad. They've openly defied his command, and now he is acting out of that wounded pride. He's furious. Literally, it says here, the ESV says that the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's like his face was contorted with anger. In other words, he wasn't just observing decorum and quietly stewing on the inside. He was angry, gritting his teeth. He was mad that how dare you. So the anger, the fury is visible on his face. He's visibly contemptuous of these three men. I'm going to do something here that I think is important. So often it's asked, where is Daniel when all this is happening? Because we see these three Judean men, and, and they're the ones making a stand. Where is Daniel? Why, why, why don't we see Daniel here? Why isn't he standing with these three Judean men in protest? Well, I think there's a, a good, solid reason for that. At the end of chapter 2, um, we are told that Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel re remained at the king's court. The context for chapter 3 is out in the province of Babylon, where it's out of the city. The king is doing a tour of his province to look at what's going on and how his peoples are responding. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were out in the province, Daniel remains back in the city at the king's court. So it seems reasonable to me, Daniel just isn't there. He's back at the king's court. He's second command. Nebuchadnezzar's out touring his province. Daniel is probably holding down the fort back in the royal city of Babylon. So back to where we are presently. He's, his face is contorted. He's angry. He says to heat the furnace seven times hotter. Whether that's meant literally or not, it doesn't really matter. What is he saying? Make it as hot as you can get it. Make it as hot as that thing will go without melting the exterior because I am this mad. I want them to burn, and I want them to burn badly. Hot as you can make it. But here's, here's the thing. What is his assumption here? When he's going to have these men executed, his assumption is the same that it always is. If we kill these men, we silence the message. They'll never be a, uh, we, we can kill these men and we can put fear in the hearts of other people. We will silence the message. It is typical and it never, ever works. The message is never silenced completely. People will be afraid, but others will be emboldened. I want to stand. 
for the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because I've seen his power. But he says here within this opening paragraph that he ordered his mighty men to bind them, and they bound them in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. Why? Why, why take time to mention those details? And there's a reason for it. Because Nebuchadnezzar is going to obliterate any memory of them from the face of... He doesn't want their clothes left. He doesn't want their turbans on the ground. He doesn't want any article of anything that they own left behind because he wants them destroyed. He wants people to see, I will destroy you utterly if you cross me. So he's leaving behind nothing. There is no trace. What is going on here? It's It's a thing I've pointed out before. I've told you it's the seed theology in Genesis 3. We are told that the seed of the woman would be at war with the seed of the serpent, and we see that all throughout the Scriptures. Again, we're watching it here. The seed of the serpent being Nebuchadnezzar, the serpent using Nebuchadnezzar to stamp out or obliterate the seed of the woman, these faithful Judean men who have not bowed their knees to any other gods, who've stood and who stand and who are willing to stand. See, the message of righteousness is against the message of sin and death. And so the message of righteousness, this is so much bigger than just these men being delivered, although that's huge. It is that righteousness wins, and we need to remember that. Well, Brad, other people die who are righteous according to the will of the Lord. I'm just talking about this instance right here. But we're looking at a situation, and beloved, what do we see? We see what could be a pervasive sense of hopelessness. Why? Well, the fire is real. It's sitting right in front of them. They can feel its heat. It's powerful. They can hear its roar. They can see its blaze. Nebuchadnezzar seems to be in complete control of this situation. Everything is happening just as he said that it would. You either bow and worship or you die. They didn't bow and worship. They're looking at the fire. So everything seems to be going exactly as Nebuchadnezzar has set in motion. In other words, it seems like he might be in control. Well, within this context, we see yet again the lack of regard for life. Nebuchadnezzar sacrifices his own men here. The men who who ordered them and throw them into the fire, because the king's order was urgent, it says in verse 22, and the furnace overheated the flame of the fire, killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see this lack of regard for life. He sacrificed his own men in order to placate his anger. In other words, it doesn't matter who dies. He doesn't care. It doesn't matter to him who dies. As long as the three men he wants dead, he'd kill a thousand, I'm sure, to kill the three. Because life means little. Beloved, when when there is no Christian worldview and we don't have a sense of the image of God in human beings, taking life becomes easy because of what value is it? It's the same as a bug. It's the same as whatever else. But you see, it's not. That's a lie from hell. It's not that way. Every human being born, conceived, living, walking, or who has died is made in the image of God, and their life is precious no matter what color they are, no matter what gender they are, where they come from, or what tribe they're with. Why do we take it to heart? Because we understand through our study of Scripture that God's imprint is on humanity. Nebuchadnezzar has rejected any sense of truth in this way, so naturally it's easy to take life. But here, the beauty of irony, and I love irony, especially in Scripture, 
because there's a, the writers use it so well. There is a subtle irony here, or maybe even not so subtle, that I think we cannot miss. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't save his own men from destruction, and he couldn't destroy God's men. And his attempt to destroy God's men, he failed, and ironically killed his own. Killed men who had probably faithfully bowed down and worshipped his image. So you see a cruel irony here. In verse 15, he said, And what is the God who is going to deliver you out of my hands? What God delivered his own men, or, or he couldn't even deliver his own men from the flames. And so this, this little crisis section is nicely summed up as it sets the table even further. In verse 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound and to the burning fiery furnace. We're supposed to, that's a good break in Hebrew. There is a break there. That's the end of a paragraph because that sets the table for then what you read after that. And it's not written in Hebrew, it's written in Aramaic. So when the next Aramaic section starts, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. So we're getting to see the response here. And he rose up in haste. He declares to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Three bound men. It's verse 23, they fell bound into the burning fire. So we understand that when they went into that fire, they were bound. And that's an important detail. That's an important detail. Because when he, he said, I see four men unbound, in verse 25, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So we see a deliverance at work here. Why? Because of God's great love. And it's bold. This is bold. It's a bold love. It's a bold deliverance. So he's astonished because three bound men went into the flames. But when he looks into the flames, he sees four men loosed, literally in the text that says loosed and walking around. What are we looking at? Well, we were just confronted with the power of a furnace that was heated seven times hotter that killed the men who were trying to throw the convicted men in. And we see these three convicted men in the flame, but they're not burning up. And not only are they not burning up, there's somebody else in there with them that we didn't put there. We're looking at the power of God. We're looking at the power of God. When you read those verses, they are not easy verses to, I mean, they could be easy verses to skip over, but when you see that the four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, the first thing we need to think about is the power of God on display. The fire cannot burn them. The, the, the binding cannot hold them. And they are not condemned alone. There's somebody divine with them. It is beautiful. It's this beautiful picture that is right there for us to, to look at and say, praise Yahweh. He delivers his people. Praise the Lord. He delivers his people. And again, we turn back to verse 15. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Yahweh will. That is the answer. Yahweh will deliver us out of your hands, and he does it. He fulfills verse 15 here. Nebuchadnezzar can't deliver his men, but Yahweh can. Another sign of the power of God. You know, another familiar passage, it comes from Isaiah, Isaiah 43. Its songs have been made about Isaiah 43. People have referenced Isaiah 43 often. There's a verse in Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2. This should be familiar to, to many of you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. 
When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, burned, and the flame shall not consume you. What a rich fulfillment of the word of God right here in Babylon. As these three Hebrew men walk into the flames and are not consumed. The text speaks of the fourth man. Nebuchadnezzar calls him two things. Calls him a son of the gods, which would have been uh, typical of the time of just saying he's divine. He's clearly not human. And in another passage, he calls him an angel, which is just kind of another nebulous descriptor of this being saying he's not human. Who was the fourth person in the fire with them? We don't know. Uh, The three primary ideas would be an angel, because we see angelic activity in this book already. When Daniel has, you know, fellowship with Gabriel, the angel, or Gabriel will reveal things as the book unfolds. So there's that. That's one possibility. It could be what's called in the Old Testament the angel of the Lord, which is an appearance of God in the flesh. That's called a theophany. So it could be the angel of the Lord with them, or it could be an Old Testament appearance of Christ. It could be any one of those three, and any one of those three would be legitimate. But let me tell you, what he was, who he was, is immaterial. That's not the point. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that when these men went into the flame, God met them there. Whether it was an angel or an appearance of himself, God met them there and said, you in your moment of trial, I am with you. In your moment of heartache and hurt and pain, I am with you. In your moment where you're scared and and there's probably some trembling, I am with you. Why? Because I love you with a bold love that cannot be broken. Or as the hymn writer says, a love that will not let us go. It's interesting when Nebuchadnezzar calls them out, he came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, I assume far away enough not to be burned. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then that is exactly what they did. Notice how he identifies them. He calls them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then what does he say? Servants of the Most High God. Not governors in my providence. Not rulers in the province of Babylon. He identifies them by their service to to Yahweh. We can't ask for better than that. To be identified, oh, I know you, Christian, because you are a servant of God. It's clear in how you live. May we all aspire to be identified by our service to the Lord. But that's how he identifies them here. And when they come walking out of the fire, we again acknowledge that it's the power of God that calls them out. The power of God is on display. What God will save you from my hands, Yahweh will. Yahweh will save us from your hands. Beloved, we serve a God who is a saving God. Where do we see that most clearly? At the cross. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God has unshackled us from the dominion of sin and the death that sin brings so that we might live freely for him as servants. Now, does that mean that we never sin again? Well, by no means. It doesn't mean that. But it means we're not dominated by sin. It means we're not bound by the death grip of sin that we have Jesus who is truth, righteousness, and life. But I also want you to understand something, too, and I want to make sure I'm very clear on this. They didn't walk out of the furnace because they were faithful. Were they faithful? Yes, they were. They walked out of the furnace because God is faithful. They walked out of the furnace because God is able. They walked out of the furnace because God drew them out, because God met them where they were and led them out. 
But here's something that's important that I do think we need to, to make note of. Could God have saved them from the flames? Yeah, he could have made it where they never had to go in there. Did God save them from the flames? No, God saved them in the fire. God saved them in the fire. He met them there. He unbound them within the midst of the flames. In the midst of the flames, they could see out and people could see in. He sent them there, literally sent them there because he had power not to. Because it was not his will, it was not his intent to keep them from danger. (laughs) He wasn't trying to keep them from danger. He says, I'll walk with you through it. We will go to danger and I will be with you. And you will go into the flame and there I'll be. We'll come to this again in Daniel when he goes into the lion's den. He could have easily have saved Daniel from that, but he didn't. He says, you're going to go into the den of lions and I will be with you. Beloved, uh, it's got to be encouraging. I mean, obviously, yes, if you're like me, you would love not to go into the fire. I would love it. But to have a God who says, I will be with you. Yes, you're going to walk through danger. We will walk through it together. It's this bold love that God meets people where they are, where they are, and the circumstances they're in. He is able. He is bold. He is willing what does he give us in those circumstances? The best gift he could give, his presence, himself. Whatever struggles you're going through, I pray you get through them. I pray they stop. But beloved, don't give in to the despair of thinking you're doing it alone. If you're in Christ this morning, he is with you. And you can depend on that. We may traverse the valleys of pain, but the hope, our hope, is that the Lord is with us. I love verse 27, and I appreciate the ESV. I'm sure the New King or the uh, New American Standard also does this, where it talks about the um, verse 27 that the fire had no, had had, the fire had not had any power over their bodies. Literally in the Aramaic, it says the fire had no power over their bodies. What a powerful statement. What a powerful statement. Of course, how is that evidenced? Well, their clothes are not burned. Their hair is not singed. They don't even smell like smoke or fire. It's kind of similar to God parting the sea and having the children of Israel walk across on dry land. It's so that we understand God moved here. It wasn't some magic trick. God moved here. The fire had no power over their body because God was in the business of preserving them. Bold love, God sent them into the fire to show it has no power over me. That's a bold love. Beloved, we we are going to face flames in our lives, and I'm not trying to, to make light of their struggles. Whatever struggles you have will be different from theirs. Similar in theory, in philosophy, different probably in experience. But whatever trials we face, whatever situations we put in, we're put in, we have to walk through those knowing that God's mercy and grace keeps us. It's not always easy to keep that straight in our minds. I understand that. Sometimes we get confused. Sometimes the the experience is so bitter that we momentarily forget that truth. And sometimes it's a hard road back to it. But if Christ is Lord, and he is, and Christ is reigning in your heart, that truth is there. Please, with all your might, whatever happens in circumstances, may we never forget that. 
I can convince in my moments of anxiety or depression or despair that I'm all alone. And I lose sight of this truth, of the presence of Christ being with me. Thank God when I come to my senses like the prodigal did and say, no, 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 I'm not alone. I have a family in Christ. I have a a wonderful friend, wife as a partner. I have Jesus living in my heart. We never prevail in our own strength. God has, has won the victory. We just get to walk in it. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar has this, this eureka moment, as he's already done before, verses 28 and 29. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Before I get to 29, I'll stop right there. His statements are awesome. That statement is awesome, and it's true. It's absolutely true. We can read that, and some commentators will say, so we can see that Nebuchadnezzar had a change of heart. Well, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think he said some things that are true. One of the things he says here that I love is that, speaking of the three men who trusted in him, that is their God, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God, what led them to disregard his command? Their trust in God. Their trust in God led them to, that's what he says it. Their faith in God led them to disobey me. Beloved, this is where we come to something that's a real struggle and a real issue that we have to face in our lives. God's people must always be prepared and ready to disobey what is evil and wicked in an effort to obey the Lord. Now, I want to be clear on this. We should never use our faith as a as a, an example or an excuse, rather, an excuse to be generally rebellious. Well, I walk in victory in the Lord's. So I don't have to obey. No, that's not the point of this. It's when the law of the land or the law in a, in a particular or a decree somewhere is it's directly attacking your faith and compelling you to do something that we know is unscriptural or unbiblical. That is when we have to stand against what is evil for what is right. So there are times like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where our trust in God compels us to disregard a word or a creed in the name of glorifying God. And you know why? Because our worship and service to God is way more valuable than preserving our lives. Their worship of Yahweh was so precious to them that they were ready to sacrifice everything. And it should always be that way. We should always be ready to sacrifice everything because the worship of God is that valuable. This ends with him issuing this threat. <laughs> he says, any, anyone there, any, who speaks against, anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego literally shall be torn limb from limb. It says that in ESV. Quartered. And their house turned into literally a dunghill, rubble, reduced. I mean, I appreciate he's saying we should honor God, but that's a bit far. I mean, that gets at the heart of somebody who, who still doesn't get it. Who still doesn't get the reality of life. He shows his heart hasn't changed here. He speaks truly of God. But there are a few things you can make note of here. Nebuchadnezzar never indicates any sort of personal connection with Yahweh. 
he calls him Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. Uh, there's no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar is drawn to this display of power just because something, I mean, if you saw three bound men thrown into a furnace walk out of there unharmed, we'd be pretty dazzled too. And we'd be attracted to that display of power. I want to see something like that again. And then he issues this horrific death threat against people. I mean, that's a, it's a bit over the top there. Clearly, we walk away from this saying something magnificent has happened. And Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't understand the value and preciousness of life. God's love may mean pain. It may mean that sometimes. In fact, in some situations, it does mean that. But it also leads to transformation. Modern people, we tend to assume that true love is always happy and pain-free. People chase that. Well, if I truly love someone, I'll be happy. My life will have no pain because that's what love is. It's a subtle lie that Satan likes to perpetuate so that he can continue to fan the flames of that divorce culture and that me-centered idea. That now love is about what makes me happy or love is about me having an easy life. And love is not that. I mean, my goodness, the people we love the most wound us the easiest and wound us the, the most deeply. And the people we love the most, we wound the most deeply because we understand that love is not a novel. It's a journey that you grow in, that you learn. God's love meant immense pain for Jesus at the cross. God's love meant immense pain for Paul throughout his life as he faithfully gave the gospel. God's love will compel you and me to walk in places that we'd rather avoid because God's love seeks to transform us, not leave us the same. We may often have to endure the flames, but the flames are never our enemy. Never. Apathy, idolatry, disobedience, disregard, those are the things that we have to fight against. God's love calls us to live by mercy. God's love calls us to walk by grace. God's love calls us to be transformed into the image of Christ. And like Job, we say, though he slay me, yet... Will I praise him? Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture, the truth it represents, the truth it presents, the hope that it gives, the love it communicates, the grace that it shines, and the mercy that it shines. Father, thank you. I pray this morning that we would be a people who understand truth, who live by truth, swayed by truth, called by truth, to be proclaimers of truth, that the truth and not a lie, that faith and not fear, that hope and not despair be the things that people see in us. Oh, Father, may we stand. May we stand. May we risk it all for you. Thank you for sending your son for your people. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. Now may we live for you in a dark world, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.